Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. So good to see you guys this morning, Venture, um, to be in God's presence, to worship together. And I'm Chuck Eastman. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm the College Young Adults Pastor. And uh, I'm going to kick off this morning a new series that we're doing on the book of James. And uh, I'm excited about it. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to spend 12 weeks in it, about six weeks before Easter and then about six weeks after. And uh, man, I'm just excited about what God is going to do uh, as we walk through uh, the book of James. Um, I'm just going to open up, if I can, this morning. I'm going to cover, I'm going to start by covering one verse this morning. Can we do that venture? We're gonna look at one verse this morning. Actually, we'll look at some other stuff, but we're gonna start with one verse in the book of James this morning. Here's what James uh, says in one verses one. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, Greetings, James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. You know, as we launch into this book, there's a bunch of stuff packed into this little verse and and some stuff we need to kind of untangle that will help us kind of understand what's gonna be happening in this book as we kind of journey through it. The first thing is the first word of the whole book, James. Who is this James? And, and just to help us over a little bit, there's three James it could be. There's James, who's the brother of John, um, who's the sons of Zebedee. Jesus called them the sons of thunder. I like that James a lot because he seems to get in a fist fight all the time. He's awesome and exciting. Problem with that James being the writer of this book is he dies by persecution really early in the book of Acts. So he dies so early that there's probably no way he could have written this book. There's another James, uh, we sometimes call him James the Lesser. The reason we call him that, uh, he's one of the 12 disciples, but we just don't know anything about him. He doesn't really show up anywhere in any of the writings of the gospels. He doesn't really do anything. Um, So we just kind of named him James the Lesser. I'm sorry, James for the Lesser for that. Um, But uh, no offense, but uh, we just don't know anything about you, James the lesser. So probably not James the lesser. In fact, if it was James the lesser, he probably would have said, hey, this is James, the son of somebody, somebody, and I was one of the disciples and you should probably read my letter. But there's none of that in there. There's just James. So we have to go, well, who is this James? And the only real option that we have is James, the brother of Jesus. Now, I don't know if anybody in the house this morning has a brother. Anybody got a brother? Yeah. Anybody ever punched your brother in the nose? Okay. I have. My mom doesn't know, but I did it. Okay. Um, I've, got, I've actually got three younger brothers. Okay. You can throw this up on the screen here. Um, I've got, that's my family right there. And uh, I don't know if you can tell where I am. I'm that good looking dude right there next to my dad. Um, and those are my brothers, Billy, Ryan, and Eric. And then my two little sisters there. And... Um, and we got into a lot of trouble. I don't know if anybody got in a lot of trouble with their brothers, but we got into a lot of trouble. You can see this next uh, picture here. This is us grown. Anybody played the game of Settlers? Um, great game. This often ended in arguments and loud fights and sometimes wrestling matches. Um, pieces thrown, you know. Um, and my brothers are all much bigger than me. I don't know if you guys can tell that by the picture. But uh, 
I don't know what happened to me. You know, I'm kind of the, I'm the oldest, but I'm the runt of the family. All my brothers are almost six foot tall and I'm, you know, five foot three. But uh, so I don't know what happened there, uh, Jesus. But um, <laughs> who else can you blame uh, except for Jesus uh, for that? Um, but, you know, as I think about what it was like to have brothers and, and James, the brother of Jesus, and what that must have been like and how that maybe shaped uh, what he wrote here, you know, um, there are a lot of stories I could tell, but there's one in particular that kind of crystallizes particularly who James might have been and, and how he might have felt uh, toward Jesus. Um, I lived uh, kind of right outside the city of Springfield, Missouri. And right next to us, there was about a, a 10 acre plot of land. It was empty for most of the time we lived there. And then when I was in high school, a church bought the land and put a building on it, a church of about a thousand people. And, uh, and they put a, a big, nice building on the land and we were right off the highway. So it was really nice access like off the highway, but you had to like drive like in front of my house and then you had to turn into this field right next to my house, right? So every Sunday morning at 10 a.m., you know, a thousand people kind of drive on the road right in front of my house and then turn literally instead of my driveway, the next driveway over right into where the church was. It happened every Sunday morning. And uh, my dad was a uh, bivocational, he had a business, a, a restaurant hood cleaning business, uh, but he's also a pastor of a small church that I grew up in. So we didn't go to church there. And so we went somewhere else and in my church, because you know everybody in my church had like 11 kids, we all met in the afternoon at two o'clock in the afternoon. So I just grew up in one of those churches with everybody had a million kids. We, we, we were evangelicals, we weren't Mormons or Catholics, but. <laughs> But anyway, I just remember, so there's this one morning, right? So, oh, <laughs> so my parents loved to go on mission trips and I was a senior in high school and they thought I was old enough. So they went to Russia and left us alone. Sorry, mom, I don't mean to put you on blast here. But so they leave and go to Russia for five weeks. And I've got five younger brothers and sisters and I'm 17 years old uh, in high school. And, um, but it's like fine, you know, we're doing our thing. And so we're having fun. But this one Sunday morning, we, we wake up to the sounds of dogs just like going nuts in our backyard. And so we go in the backyard and like all big families, we owned rabbits. And uh, we went in the backyard and some dogs from the neighbor, so we're here and the, ch and the church is right next to us. And then across the street, you know, the road that everyone drives over, uh, across the street, uh, is my neighbor and they have these pit bulls and the pit bulls had come across the street and they were in the back of our yard and they were knocking the rabbits out of the cages and they were killing the rabbits. And we, me and my brothers, we all kind of got there. We all woke up and kind of got there at the same time and we're all kind of going like, what is going on? And my brother Ryan acted, heroically some might say. And he went back to my dad's bedroom and he found my dad's 357. Now I know you California people don't know what this is about, but <laughs> In Missouri, it's not unlikely you could go to your dad's bedroom and find a weapon of some kind. And uh, so he went there and he found this 357 Dirty Harry style handgun. And uh, he went back to the backyard. We were still, the rest of us are still mouth gape, like what are we gonna do about these dogs? And Ryan, not my, not the brother closest to me in age, like the next one down, comes out with this huge handgun that's bigger than his head. And he takes a shot at these dogs in the backyard. It doesn't hit a dog, nothing. Now you gotta imagine, it's 
So right next to my backyard is a thousand people trying to go to church. Pow, pow, pow in the backyard. He didn't hit the dog. The dog runs into our front yard. Now he's in the front yard where there's the road where everybody is going to church. And my brother runs to the front yard. We don't stop him. We don't tackle him to the ground. We don't do anything like that. My brother goes and he takes a knee as if he'd been trained his whole life. And he pulled the trigger, bam, bam, bam. Doesn't hit a dog. Fires past a couple cars and hits the neighbor's house across the street. In five minutes, 30 police cars were around my house with my parents in Russia. And of course it's Missouri. So once they kind of got it all out and they saw the dead rabbits and they got the, they just collected our guns and they were like, tell your dad when he comes back, he can get our guns and, and all that stuff. And actually nothing bad happened to us. But you know what's funny is that my brother, uh, he actually is a pretty good worship leader (laughs) now. (laughs) But every time I see him lead worship, I think about him shooting those dogs. (laughs) Every time I see him get up there, man, with his face serious about Jesus, I think, dude, you about killed somebody going to church. (laughs) If these people only knew what you did, And I wonder if James had a little bit of that experience with Jesus. I mean, as brothers and whose father was a carpenter, I'm sure they would have had a lot of experiences that he would have had that would have shaped his opinion of Jesus. I'm guessing they would have wrestled. I mean, a dad is a carpenter and you know, you got him and you got another brother named Jude and another brother named Joseph. And I'm guessing they wrestled and fought a little bit. Um, I'm wondering, you know, uh, did they beat Jesus up? Did Jesus beat them up? I don't know. I know I didn't let my younger brothers beat me up. So I don't think that's sin or anything. And maybe Jesus took James to the woodshed a couple times because he was just like, I'm the oldest brother, you know? Um, they, they must have argued. I don't know about you, but I, mean, I argued incessantly with my brothers. That must have been so frustrating because Jesus was never wrong. You imagine that? You imagine arguing with a sibling who is never wrong and has perfect recall of everything you've ever done? Yeah, well, Jesus, you know, well, you know, James, I remember. Remember when you said this at that time? And yeah, that would have been terrible. I might have punched him in the nose just for that. They must have worked together. You know, he must have seen Jesus being back then. Food wasn't all that good. So Jesus probably got salmonella all the time. I don't know if any images are coming to anybody's mind. You know, but, you know, he probably got the flu. He probably had some stuff that was like hard to clean up. Must have been interesting being the brother of Jesus. And what we know about this experience with Jesus is that James doesn't come out right away and say, I believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Well, would you? If you grew up with Jesus and you saw him from little boy growing on up and you had all these experiences together. And what we find is James is a skeptic. Check this out actually in the Bible. This maybe you haven't seen this before, but it's really amazing. When we look at the accounts in the gospel, uh, James and his brothers are skeptics. John seven verse one says this. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee and he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews feast of booths was at hand. This is one of the seven festivals Jews um, celebrated every year. And so his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works you're doing. I just want you to know that's sarcastic. Their brothers are like, hey, why don't you like go out there where they'll see you. And if you're really doing this stuff, then they'll all see it. Like, come on, you're full of 
junk, okay? Jesus, you're talking now a big game about how you're the Messiah and all. How about you just go out there where they'll all see you and we'll just settle this thing, okay? For they said, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. That's a pretty big deal. His closest family, his brothers are like, dude, please, you're the Messiah. I just arm wrestled you and beat you, dude. Like, you're not even that good of a carpenter. Come on. It's not the only time. Check this out in Mark chapter three. Mark chapter three, you get a similar thing, three verse 20. Uh, and by the way, just, just so you know, for context at this point, Jesus has already done some miracles and crowds are already pressing in on Jesus. They're already coming around Jesus. They're hearing his teaching and they've seen some miracles. And, and, and just so you know, so have the brothers. And now there are miracles and teaching and crowds that are coming around Jesus and check out what happens in Mark chapter three, verse 20. Right after he gathered actually his 12 disciples, it said one time Jesus entered a house and the crowds began to gather again. And soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. There were so many crowds. Then his family heard what was happening. Other translations point really to like his mother and his brothers, but his family heard what was happening and they tried to take him away. He is out of his mind, they said. He's out of his mind. In other words, James and Jude and his other brother, Joseph, they're not swayed by the crowds, would you? You're like, all oh, these guys think you're awesome. They hadn't seen nothing, man. I have seen you with diarrhea, okay? <laughs> Listen, I have seen you get sick. You're not, you're not the Messiah, all right? Um, they're not swayed by the miracles. They're not even moved by his teaching. And here's, and you can go read this. And when Jesus goes all the way to the cross, listen, it's not like somewhere along the way, pre-cross, they come along. Even all the way to John 19, when Jesus is being brutally crucified on a cross, his mother's there, some of his disciples are there, John, the, the, the son of Zebedee is there, and Jesus is on the cross, and guess what? There are none of his brothers at the cross. So much so that Jesus, looking down at the cross, says to John, John, this is your mother now. This is Mary. This is your mother. And Mary, this is your son. Why? Because her own biological sons were not part of the kingdom. James wasn't there. Which means that as you keep reading your Bible, it should kind of floor you to open up in the book of Acts and see in Acts 1 that all the people that are waiting for the Holy Spirit to fall, all the people that are waiting for the promise of the Spirit at Pentecost, and you read the list who's there, very historical, Luke does, and then he points right there at the end of Acts 1, Mary and all the brothers of Jesus. Huh? What? Not at the cross, not believing, saying he's crazy. When all of a sudden in Acts 1, there's the brothers waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit. If you read the book of Acts a little further, you see in Acts 15, not only is he there, but now he's the senior leader of the main church in the world at the time, the church of Jerusalem. 
So much so that as they're debating theological controversy in Acts 15 about Gentiles and can Gentiles be included? And if Gentiles are gonna be included, what will that mean for them? And what do they have to do? And Peter gets up and he says, well, I think they can be included, you know, because I had this vision of Gentiles. And, and then finally James gets up and he settles the issue. See it, he's the decisive voice in the church. And he says, actually, this is, they can be included, absolutely. And here's all we're gonna require. We are not gonna require them to become Jewish, to be a part of the kingdom. We're not gonna demand circumcision. We're just gonna hold them to the, the teachings of Jesus. And we're gonna say, hey, if they put their faith in the gospel, they're in just like we are. He's the decisive voice of the church in Jerusalem at Acts 15. So then we have to ask ourselves the question, what happened? Church history begins to call him by the second century, James the just. How did James the cynic become James the just? And if we wanna answer the question of what happens, actually, Paul helps us in 1 Corinthians and he gives us kind of an insight into why all of a sudden we see James, the brother of Jesus, not only putting his faith in Jesus, but also being the leader, the senior leader of the church in Jerusalem. And here's what, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you with which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to, to Cephas Peter, and then to the 12 disciples. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, don't miss this, most of them are still alive at the time of this writing. So if you're not sure what you think about Jesus, Paul says there are people who put their hands on someone everyone knew was dead. And there are 500 of them and there's some of them are still, most of them are still alive. You're not sure about Jesus, go talk to somebody who met Jesus risen from the dead. And then he says, verse seven, then he appeared to James, not the James of the 12, but another James, James the brother, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as one untimely born, he also appeared to me. What happened that turned James from James the skeptic to James the just? And what Paul says happened is that the resurrected Jesus who was crucified on a cross, rose from the dead the way he said he would, and he got a personal private encounter with his dead brother who was now alive. And I don't know where anybody is in the room this morning. And you may have said, man, I've read the Bible and I just don't get it. I'm not sure I'm convinced. Or maybe you've even heard of encounters that people have had and you've heard of miracles. I don't know where you are, but here's what happened for James. He met the living Jesus. And maybe that's what some need this morning is that some this morning need to say, hey, I can't figure out all these questions, but did Jesus really die on a cross? And is he alive today? I think it's the strongest apologetic 2000 years ago. And I still think it's the strongest apologetic today. Is Jesus alive and can I meet him? Can I encounter him? 
The resurrection of Jesus shifted two people who were the most confident Jesus couldn't be God into the strongest leaders of the early church. Don't ever, ever discount the power of the reality of a resurrected Jesus. It is the centerpiece of our faith. And it's what put a killer named Paul into motion. And it's what put a brother who grew up with Jesus and said, I just can't believe he's the Messiah. The difference is Jesus rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, then we should do what he says. That's the game changer. So then that gets us back to the book of James. Another issue that we should probably deal with in the book of James is some tensions around the letter. There's some tensions around this letter. It's really awesome that actually we just did a long series on the book of Romans because one of the big tensions of this letter is some of the things that are in the letter that some people think are in contrast or in conflict with Paul's writings in Romans. Now we won't get into all that this morning, but just so you know, as we get into the book of James, you're gonna have to use your brain a little bit to wrestle with ideas that seem to be kind of intention in the Bible. And I think as we wrestle with that, we're gonna find that there isn't a tension. The main tension here in the letter is what Paul seems to say in Romans four, which is that salvation is by faith alone. Or what you sometimes see or what you see kind of alluded to in James chapter two, which is that salvation is not by faith alone, but also by works. And so that language seems to be in conflict. And actually, if we wanna get at the heart of what's going on in the book of James, we have to resolve some of that tension. I'll just say this before I move on real quick, because we're gonna get into all that tension later. Some of the things that resolve that tension uh, is the difference between orthodoxy, right belief, and orthopraxy, right conduct. They are not opposites. They don't fight against one another, but they are different. And so where you see Paul dealing with a Gentile audience saying, this is the gospel. You haven't grown up reading the Old Testament. You haven't grown up reading, knowing what the law is. You don't know what the standards of God are. And so he comes to the Gentiles and he says, hey, I need to articulate for you what the gospel is and how you get in. Because Gentiles who genuinely want to follow Jesus, they thought that meant they had to become Jewish get circumcised, obey the Mosaic law. So Paul writes a lot of his stuff to say to the Gentile audience and to the Jewish Christians they do church with, hey, listen, Gentiles don't have to get circumcised to follow Jesus. Well, James' audience is very different. You see it there in 1.1 again. He's a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the scattering or the dispersion. He's writing to a, a Jewish audience and in fact, he's writing to a Jewish audience that had extensive knowledge of scripture. All Jews did at the time. Most Jewish boys, if they didn't go on to study to be um, a Pharisee, most Jewish boys had to have the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. Anybody tried to memorize Leviticus recently? <laughs> so, so Jewish audience had a, an extensive knowledge of scripture and they were some of the first Christians to believe in Jesus. A lot of the people that he writes to in this letter, many of them could have been right there at Acts 2. Could have been right there at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they went out and built the, the first church in the first century. 
And so he's got a very different audience. And, and, and here's the other thing. And he writes it before Paul writes Romans. So James isn't coming along trying to nitpick at Paul. What he's trying to do is he's trying to look at a very mature group of believers. And he's trying to say, you know the orthodoxy. You know the right belief. Do you know the right practice? Or are you doing what you know your belief should drive you to do? How many of you guys know that the longer you're a Christian, the more separation there is sometimes from what you know is true and from what you do? When you're young in your faith, you're like, that's what I believe and I'm gonna do this. And then the longer you go sometimes, it just seems to be that the gap gets bigger and bigger between what you know is true and, and what you're doing with your life. And we even come up with excuses for why our life doesn't align with what we know the word of God says. So much so that this tension was resolved really through looking at this stuff. And we're gonna see some of that, that Martin Luther eventually, Martin Luther who had said early on in his walk with the Lord, he had said, hey, I don't like James. It's all talking about works and all this lifestyle stuff. I wanna talk about Jesus and the gospel. And he looked at James and he basically said, I think it's an epistle of straw. It's a, it's a weak, you can blow it over. It's a weak epistle. And then later as he grappled with the tension, he said this very famous phrase, he said, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone. What's he saying? He's saying, hey, salvation, this regeneration of the heart, this coming to new life, that's the work of Jesus. It's faith alone, but a faith that has brought my dead heart to new life, that faith is never alone. It always produces fruit. And in, and in some way that, that, that kind of resolves some of the, the tension of this book. The third thing I wanna look at this morning, just briefly, is the tone of the letter. The tone of the letter, it's got a beautiful style of writing. Some say it's some of the most beautiful writing in the New Testament in terms of its style of Greek. But, but there's some things that are really cool about it that we should notice. One is that it's marked by a unique similarity to the words of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Ralph Martin, uh, who writes a commentary in the Word Biblical Commentary, points out 18 statements that are very similar in the way that they're written and in the heartbeat of the message. 18, a lot of them show up in like the Sermon on the Mount. Rejoice in trials, Matthew 5 and James 1. Blessed are the peacemakers, Matthew 5 and James 3. Praise for the meek and the humble, Matthew 5 and James 3. Warnings against losing your temper, Matthew 5 and James 1. There's a lot of similarities with the words. Now, now this would make sense, right? If James had his own firsthand account of walking with Jesus and hearing his teachings and hearing the way that he spoke and knowing the ways he used idioms. Now, if you really wanna get nerdy, the guys that really know the Greek say, some of these idioms are so similar, it speaks to know, that basic speaking the language the same way. We all know we speak the language a little differently, right? But how many of you know that you use some of the same stuff your brothers and sisters use? In fact, when my wife met my siblings for the first time, she was like, oh my gosh, you guys talk exactly the same. And it's true. And so you see some of that showing up, a unique similarity to the words of Jesus in the gospel of Matthew. It reads a little bit like Proverbs. What you'll see in the book of Proverbs is a bunch of sayings that don't always seem like there's a good context for them. Just kind of like, hey, be wise like this and do like this and, and, and trust like this. And James can often read like the book of Proverbs. And then I think one of the most significant things here in the tone of the letter 
is that the letter highlights the core practices of the early church. Now, some say that this letter really gives us a picture into the things that really distinguished the early church. Things about how they take, took care of widows and orphans. Things about how the rich and the poor were actually in one church sitting next to each other. That people who had a lot sat next to somebody who had nothing. And, and they didn't give the rich honorable treatment, but they said, hey, you're all part of one family. That was so countercultural in the Greco-Roman world. In the, in the Greco-Roman world, if you were wealthy, you had the honor. And if you were poor, something was wrong with you and God probably didn't like you very much. And the early church came along and said, uh-uh, you guys are brothers and sisters. You guys get together, you're one family. And so there were many of these practices that really made the church very attractive in the first century. The other thing about the tone, the last thing I wanna point out here about the tone of the letter is that it sharply addresses hypocrisy, sharply. That it, that it, that it looks deeply at the Christian and says, are you living out what you know? You know, um, I don't know about you, but when I meet people who aren't, don't really interested in Jesus and they definitely don't wanna go anywhere near a church, one of the first things, if you really get down with them, the thing they'll say is, you know, these Christians are big hypocrites, man. They all talk about love and then, they, then they're hateful on social media. You know, and some of, your, some of your pastors that are the most well-known, you find out later, they're just trying to be rich or, or worse, they're having an affair. And you, you, you Christians are all just hypocrites. And if that bothers you, if you're sitting in the room this morning and you're like, yeah, I'm here, but actually I'm really cynical. You guys, you guys keep saying you're gonna, you believe this book and, and you're trying to live like Jesus and all that stuff. Most of the Christians I know, you don't. And if that bothers you, I just want you to know it bothers James a lot. It bothers him so much. Just get a couple of examples of how this bothers James. Look at uh, chapter one, uh, verse 22. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. That's pretty strong language. If you hear the word and you don't do the word, you're a liar to yourself. That's pretty strong. And that's what he would say to the hypocrite. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. James wants to go, are you stupid? I mean, that's what that means. I mean, just imagine that you wander up to the mirror, you look at yourself in the mirror and then you walk away and you go, well, do I have hair or not? James has sharp words for hypocrisy. My favorite is when he talks about the tongue. Look what he says in three, verse nine, talking about how we speak with our tongue. He says in three, verse nine, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and our father. We worship Jesus with it. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Did you hear that? Social media generation, you cannot say that you worship the God of the universe and then look at image bearers and curse them. You can't do it. And yet Christians are known for this kind of thing all the time. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Like Jesus, 
James' strongest rebukes are for those who claim to know and love God. If you read your gospel, you know what Jesus said. You know what he said in Matthew 23, the the seven woes for the religious leaders of the day, who things like they preach, but they don't practice. Hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, who on the outside are all beautiful. Oh, they seem so godly. Oh, they love Jesus with their mouth, but on the inside, they're dead, rotting bodies. That's the words of Jesus to those who say they love God, but don't do what they say they believe. The harshest language in this Bible from Jesus and from James are for those who claim to know and love God. And I don't know if that helps anybody this morning. If you're tired of hypocrisy, James would agree with you. The last section I wanna look at here is what drives James in this letter. Like what's the thing that's, what's the thing that, what's his why? What's getting, it up, getting him up to, to push him through to say, I've got to write this letter. I need people to know what I have to say. What's driving him? And I think if we want to know what drives him, we look again at verse one. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything James wants to say flows out of how how he identifies himself as a humble servant and the central way he sees Jesus. And that's true for all of us, by the way. How you see yourself in light of Jesus. You just notice here, he doesn't say James, the half-brother of Jesus. He He could've name dropped. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I want people to really listen to me, I name drop, you know, my name's Chuck. You know, I work for Tim Lundy. (laughs) Just want you to know back in Arkansas, that really works. (laughs) Like big time. We do that all the time, right? You should listen to me, right? You should hear what I'm saying because of who I am. And James says, man, what's driving me is is I'm a humble servant of God and, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's the Lord? He's the sovereign ruler over my life. Is Jesus Lord over all of your life? James wants to know. Is he Lord over all of it? Nothing shapes the trajectory of our lives more than how we see God and how we see ourselves in light of God. Nothing, absolutely nothing. If he's just an advisor and I go to him for, to be, for some consulting advice, that's gonna change the way I live my life as opposed to him being Lord of my life. If he's just a genie whose his whole purpose in the universe is to serve me and give me what I want, I'm gonna relate to him differently. I love what Tozer says is what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And James would agree. He'd say, hey, I'm not gonna say, listen to me because I'm the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. I'm not gonna say, listen to me because I'm the half brother of Jesus. I'm gonna say, I'm the servant of God. And I live my life in submission to his lordship. And every bit of this letter is gonna press in on us to say, is Jesus Lord over our response to things like difficult trials? 
chapter one. Is Jesus Lord over whose wisdom we're gonna rely on? Are we gonna rely on my wisdom? Are we gonna rely on religion, uh, wisdom of the day? Or am I gonna look into his word and say, your wisdom, Lord, that's what I wanna know. Is Jesus Lord over how we respond to temptation? Are we gonna take responsibility for temptation? James says, you keep blaming God and you keep blaming other people. How about knowing it starts in your own heart? Is he Lord over how we care for the most vulnerable in our communities? Is he Lord over how we view and treat the poor? Is Jesus Lord over how we talk? when when, When we're angry and we have a temper, do we feel justified in unleashing that temper, fathers on our children or at the workplace? Is, is he Lord over how we talk and our temper? Is he Lord over how we handle conflict? Is Jesus Lord over how we plan and prepare for the future? Is he really Lord over how you look at your resources and say, hey, I'm looking toward the future and he's Lord over what I'm doing to plan for that? Or am I just gonna use my own wisdom? Is he Lord over how we view injustice? Are we passive when we see injustice? Is Jesus Lord over how we pray? Do we actually pray because we believe the sovereign God of the universe has something to say about our suffering, about our sickness, about the situations we're in? You know, this is a big struggle for me because I just want to kind of figure it out. My wife is so good. She goes, you know, have you prayed about that yet? That's the most annoying, (laughs) convicting question. It's so frustrating. And sometimes I lie and say, yeah, I prayed. I'm a pastor. Of course I prayed. James wants to know, man, are you going to pray? Like understanding that God holds the weather in his hand? Are are you going to come to him when you're sick? Understanding that your sovereign God has written every one of your days out? Is he Lord over your life? Is he Lord over how we respond to failure? James chapter 5. When we fail, when we're stuck in sin, when we are falling apart on the inside and we've sinned in ways we know are wrong and shame begins to overwhelm us, are we gonna do what James says, which is to take our sin and grab one of our brothers and confess our sin to one another so that we could be healed? Or are we gonna run, hide and defend? Is he Lord over how we respond to our failures? Who hasn't failed by the way? I mean, who hasn't messed up? Who hasn't lost their temper? And I hate to give people who aren't sure what they think about Jesus any ammo, but you know, I'm sorry. I know I'm not supposed to lose my temper, but I've lost my temper. I, I hate, it breaks my heart sometimes that, that I haven't treated the poor the way that Jesus would. And the non-Christians look at me and they go, well, dude, you say this, but I don't see any action on your part. I can look through this whole list and this whole book and say, failed, failed, failed. Who hasn't failed? And I love what James does almost at the end of the book, right in the middle of chapter four, the second to last chapter of the book, he gets to a crescendo, a fever pitch, if you will. And he looks and he writes to this, group of people who say they know God and have walked with God for a long time. And he says, you adulterous people, you adulterous people, you think you could be friends and live in the way of the world and be friends with God. 
And in the very next line, verse six, but he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. He gives grace when you're suffering. He gives grace when you've gone through a divorce. He gives grace when you've lost your job. He gives grace when you give in to temptation. He gives grace when you lose your temper. He gives grace when you're stressing out about the future. He gives more grace. Isn't that awesome? This whole book on the practical faith of the believer. And then right toward the end, James pulls up and he says, you are a hypocrite, but he gives more grace. You have failed, but he gives more grace. And therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How do you receive the grace that Jesus has available for you? You have to stop defending and you have to come and lay down your life. Submit yourself therefore to God. That's the whole theme. Is he Lord, are you gonna submit yourself to God? Are you gonna resist the devil and he will flee from you? And I love verse eight, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I tell you the, the main thing I talk about with people in discipleship and pastoral counseling is when people are in failure, the tension on their heart is whether they will run or whether they will draw in. And you can see it in their eyes whether shame will overcome and they will say, I cannot live up to Jesus. I cannot live up to the ways of Jesus and I've messed up and I can't do it. And James says, draw near and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Yeah, let sin, let the weight of sin break your heart. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself. Who's, who's James? The humble servant of God. And what? Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Love this book. The blueprint for a practical faith. To say, hey, I believe in who Jesus is and what he says. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm gonna do what he calls me to do. And in and when I fail, there is more grace. I'm gonna draw in. I'm not gonna run, hide and defend. And that's the beauty of the gospel actually. The beauty of the gospel invites us to draw near. Jesus, our hearts have a really hard time grabbing onto some of this stuff. but your tender mercy and the tender grace you showed a cynical brother who just wouldn't get with the program when you were right there in front of him. And yet you gathered him up and you put him back together and you said, James, I don't care if you didn't believe before, I've got plans for you today. And that's true for every one of us in the house this morning. Would you stir our hearts to draw near and receive all the grace that you have for us? In Jesus' name. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. 
To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.